Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 311 with Chris Voss. I think you'll really enjoy this one because there's an element of drama, of excitement, of sort of action movie goodness, because Chris Voss is drawn from his experience as the former lead international kidnapping negotiator at the FBI, and he's distilled a lot of their wisdom and his own insights along the way into negotiation, persuasion, communication, building rapport. So many good, powerful skills you could apply in many, many circumstances. So you'll learn one, the FBI eight negotiation skills you could use at work. Two, why yes is the last thing you want to hear. And three, the two words that immediately transform a negotiation. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep311. And speaking of awesomeatyourjob.com and great episodes, I'd love it if you could kindly take the survey to let us know what are the best episodes and the not so best episodes in your view so we can optimize the 300 episodes that appear in the feed going forward. So that is available at awesomeatyourjob.com slash best. Now here's Chris's story. Chris Voss is the CEO of the Black Swan Group and author of the national bestseller, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It which was named one of the seven best books on negotiation. A 24-year veteran of the FBI, Chris retired as the lead international kidnapping negotiator there. Drawing on his experience in high-stakes negotiations, his company specializes in solving business communication problems using hostage negotiation solutions. Their negotiation methodology focuses on discovering the black swans, small pieces of information that have a huge effect on an outcome. Chris and his team have helped companies secure and close better deals, save money, and solve internal communication problems. Here is Chris. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, my pleasure. Let's be awesome. Oh, let us. Well, speaking of awesome, I'm sure you have many awesome stories. And just to set the scene, could you kick us off by sharing a dramatic FBI negotiation story? Dramatic FBI negotiation story? (laughs) Like action music will be playing in the background, maybe, if you splice that in. Car chases and shootouts, right? Put a little bit of James Bond music in there for me in the background. <laughs> yeah. All right, so 12-year-old boy gets kidnapped in Haiti in a carjacking. Uh, and it's the standard business of kidnapping in Haiti. Their particular business model is carjack a car with more than one person in it. Let one of those people go. You got a car and a hostage, and you're the person you just let go to notify the family. Even better if one of those people's a kid, is more likely they're going to pay, right? Yeah. As it turns out, which happened a lot in Haiti at the time, it was before the earthquake, the kid's a dual national. He's, a, he's an American citizen. He's a Haitian citizen. Bad guys don't know they got an American. They think they just grabbed a Haitian. It's hap- it happens a lot. There are a lot of dual nationals in Haiti, and it was pretty much exclusively the business model at the time. And this was, of course, their business model with the carjacking because it's really smart. Um, you know, uh, it's pre-qualification, if you will. If they have a car, they probably got money for ransom. Yeah. So uh, dad's not an American citizen. He knows his son is. Goes to the U.S. Embassy for help. U.S. Embassy says the FBI is going to help you. Now, I don't know what went through his mind when he was told that. I could s- imagine maybe he was thinking – you know, helicopters going to show up, snipers. ninjas are going <laughs> to snipers, you know, the cavalry, whatever, inside of 15 minutes. But instead, 
inside of 15 minutes, he gets a call from some guy in Washington, D.C. named Chris Voss, who says he's going to help him. And he literally says to me on the phone, you're in Washington, D.C. <laughs> how are you going to help me? Now, Pete, I would ask you, how long have I got before this guy hangs up the phone? Ooh, I'm guessing three sentences. That's at the outside, probably. <laughs> Which, interestingly enough, is exactly the same amount of time you got to make a first impression, too. Um, or to make any impression in the beginning of a conversation. Because everybody you interact with at all times, as soon as you get started with them, the human nature response is, how are you going to help me? Yeah. So I will tell you that, uh, and by the time I... I I got exactly where I wanted to go, probably about 15 seconds with this guy, principally because I'd done this wrong before. Because, you know, I'd ask you, you're me, what do you say? What would you imagine you need to say at this point? I've done this dozens of times from Washington, D.C. You were in the best hands in the world. Right. Convincing. Trying to establish credibility and competence, which sounds like a sales job. <laughs> now, the good thing about that, actually, your gut instinct is your Instinct is that uh, the absolute most important two things to establish right off the bat are trust and competence, not liking, All right. but trust and competence. And that's what you went for and what you were saying. But the very next thing, as soon as you start talking, people ask themselves, they say, do I have to explain this to this guy? You know, do, I, do, I, do you have any idea what's going on? So here's what I said to the dad. And I didn't give him any of my resume, nothing. I said, all right, so Haitian kidnappers are not killing kidnap victims these days. I realize that's really stupid because they kill each other at the drop of a hat, but they're not killing kidnap victims. Now, today is Thursday, and Haitian kidnappers love to party on Saturday night. So if you say the things I want you to say, when I want you to say them, we will have your son out by Friday afternoon, Saturday, or Saturday morning early. And he said to me, tell me what you want me to do. Well done. And we had a son out Saturday morning. That's so good. Can you, are there a few key sentences that he should share? So the first thing is, my job now is helping people understand how to communicate and effectively in all aspects of their lives. So I told him what he was facing. I sh instead of telling him I understood or tell him instead of saying, look, I know what you're dealing with. I've done it before. I just laid it out for him. Here's your environment. Here's what you're looking at. Because it immediately relieves the other person of the burden of having to figure out whether or not you know what's going on. You just show them you know what's going on. And then, and and plus, you know, I didn't give them a strategy either. But what I did was offer them the slightest bit of insight into that dynamic, which I probably didn't even need to do. You know, the bit about Haitian kidnappers want a party on Saturday night, which is a thousand percent true. Of in any in anybody, like try try to get a deal done on Wall Street in New York in August. It ain't gonna happen because they're all partying in the Hamptons. What and I the reason one of the reasons I love about that example is because it's kind of fun to compare Wall Streeters to Haitian kidnappers. <laughs> <laughs> but as soon as you understand, you know the social dynamics and the social dynamics are pretty common across the world. A friend of mine once recently said. Every situation is different, but every situation has the same basic common threads. When you understand human nature, you begin to understand the common threads. Common thread this guy is wondering about is, do I know what's going on? I told him. One of two things happen. Either he says, tell me what you want me to do, or he corrects me 
And if he corrects me, that means we got dialogue. We're all, I've just instantly, him correcting me is the instantaneous establishment of a collaborative relationship, which is where I want to go anyway. So there's no downside to laying out to somebody what they're looking at, no matter what the circumstances are. And it's instant rapport. It's just add water. It's faster. It's actually faster because I, I, one of the reasons I knew how to do this because I've done it wrong in different situations where they basically challenged my expertise. And I said, look, I've been an FBI agent for 24 years, trained FBI hostage negotiator, went through Scotland Yard, went through Harvard Law School's negotiation course. Not only do I, not only have I trained where the FBI wrote the book, but I'm now writing the book. Now, I didn't, I didn't give you but 25% of my resume just now. And it took longer hmm. than it would have, than it took for me to lay out to the guy what he was facing with. That's the other crazy thing about this. This is faster. It's the indirect route, and it actually takes less time to say it to the other side because otherwise they want to argue, you know, do you know what's going on? Have you ever done this before? And even if you've done it before, how do I know you know what's going on? How do I know that you haven't done this a million times and you're not smart enough to figure it out? That's why you've had to do it so many times. (laughs) Yeah. There's an old saying, some people have 10 years of experience and some people have one year of experience 10 times. Well said. So you remove all those questions by just immediately laying stuff out for people. I like it. I like it a lot. And so you're sharing these principles as you're doing your work with the Black Swan Group and your book, Never Split the Difference. And I understand that you point to nine principles to being more persuasive. Could you give us a quick lay of the land there? Well, you know what they really are, those nine, the nine, the negotiation nine that you're referring to is those nine specific techniques, tactics um, that we brought from hostage negotiation. Now, hostage negotiators have eight basic skills which I would refer to as the FBI-8. Now, the crazy thing about that, every single hostage negotiation team in the world, whether they're in Baghdad, Iraq, Cape Town, South Africa, Tel Aviv, Israel, Tokyo, Japan, Chicago, Illinois, they all use the exact same eight skills in one format or another. doesn't matter where, because these work on the common thread, human nature. These work on human nature. So... You get these set. You get this set of skills, and it it's not cross culture. It transcends culture. It works on people because they're people, because they're human beings. And they kind. And then of those nine, these skills that are applicable to everyone, regardless of gender or ethnicity, doesn't matter if you're Asian, African, Latino. They're kind of broken out into two two groups: groups to provoke thinking, or groups to repeat what someone said or groups to sort of dig into how they're really being driven. And they focus on, you know, you ask, you ask a question, you never ask somebody, you never try to get somebody to say yes. You, ne- you never ask a closed ended question where the answer is yes. But you ask a calibrated question, calibrated for effect, or you make a statement that's calibrated for effect. So it's a combination of effects of questions and statements and repetitions um, and bundled together, they just, they open people up. It's, it's, it's true, sir. It's getting people to tell the truth without knowing they're telling the truth. Well, that's fantastic. So tell us how it's done. You know, um, it's being a little bit deliberate. It's not talking first. It's not making an argument. You know, it's amplifying what people say. Um, it's being patient. It's shutting up sometimes. It's, you know, what it really is, Stephen Covey gave us a lot of a, a great advice a long time ago, seek first to understand and be understood. So we take Covey's advice, 
Because what I'm trying to do is be understood, the second half of what Covey said, then be understood. Covey basically wanted the other person to talk first. So we say, seek first to show understanding, and then you can be understood. So it's showing understanding. It's really counterintuitive. I got a, uh, a guy um, gave me a great uh, story the other day about how he bought a car. You know the best way to get somebody's price on a car down? Let's hear it. Tell them it's worth every penny they're asking. All right. Because what that does, it takes away their argument. You you want to you say, ah, car isn't any good. There's a million cars around here. It provokes an argument. It gives them an argument. They say, well, no, this is worth, they're going to give you all the reasons why it's worth every penny they're asking. So if you say, look, man, that's a great car. That car is beautiful. It's probably worth more than what you're asking. It's worth every penny. You Suddenly they're shocked. They don't know it, but you've taken their argument away from you. They're, they're listening to you really carefully. They no longer have an argument to make. And then after you say, after you say, look, man, this is great. It's a beautiful car. It's worth every dime. I just can't pay you that. They're, they, they, they don't know what to do. <laughs> They're shocked. I mean, it's one of, one of the stories. I get the sexiest color SUV you ever saw in your life. I fell in love with this Toyota 4Runner when I saw it. Saucer Red Pearl. I mean, that even sounds sexy. Does it not? Oh, yeah, it does. I want to see it. <laughs> Saucer Red Pearl. Yeah, baby. I mean, it's just great, deep, sort of salsa, red, burgundy color. I still got it. When I went and bought that truck, I said, you know, this, this, I love this truck. It's beautiful. It's worth more than what you're asking for. It's, it's worth every dime. And uh, I just can't pay that. How am I supposed to pay that? And the, sale, the sales guy looked at me and he like blinked because he blinked about four times because his brain was just resetting. <laughs> And he got up and he, and he went in the back and he came out with a lower price. And the guy, the, well, this friend of mine, his name is Joe. He did the same thing. He was laughing about it when he was telling me because he said, you know, you guys, this, this is a great car. It's a great, great price and you're giving a discount. He said, you know, you're, you're being generous. I mean, it's a, it's a great price. I just can't pay it. He said the guy just, the guy was flummoxed. When he's telling me the story, he started laughing. He goes, like, I, I didn't imagine in a million years this would work. The guy did the same thing. He went in the back and came back out with a better price. And then I said it to him again. I said, oh, my oh my God, you know, you're so generous. You're so wonderful. I just, that's so nice of you. I mean, that, that car, it's, I just can't pay it. He said the guy went in the back again, came back out with another price. You know, when you start, when you start making the other sides, when you start articulating their position, what Covey said, but, uh, you know, instead of seek first to understand, show understanding. When you lay out their position for them, they're left with nothing to say. And they're never more agreeable than they are at that moment. Well, that's brilliant. And what I love is it also gets them on your side. It's like, oh, well, I got to figure this out for you. (laughs) That's my new job now is to help make this work for you. You know, you're exactly right. And that was one of the things that Joe told me. He said, suddenly I felt like we were collaborating and not only that we were collaborating, but he was trying to solve it for me. And that's exactly what you just said. Something sort of crazy happens. There's some neuroscience behind it that backs it up. And then they suddenly become collaborative. They're on your side. They want to help you. Well, so that's a fantastic way to start. And so then where do we take it from there? You know, we could talk about my favorite color. It's also red pearl. 
All right. <laughs> it sounds critical. Some insights will bubble up from this. You know, sort of where we take it from here, I mean, this is this is counterintuitive stuff. I mean, this is, you know, one of the questions that you were kind enough to send me in advance is what's a big idea of your book? And we were trying to understand whether it's everything you know about negotiation is wrong or yes is the last thing you want to hear. So which one of those two sounds more interesting to you? The last one sounds more interesting to me because the first one sounds like, oh, okay, marketer, you're trying to grab my attention as opposed to the second one makes me go, huh? Yeah, really? What do you mean? <laughs> Perfect. Excellent. All right. So somebody calls you on the phone. They say, hey, have you got a few minutes to talk? What's your instant reaction? Well, I probably don't. <laughs> Skepticism, right? Yeah. We put up our guard. The crazy thing is, is that when we say yes, we're committed to something. And commitment creates anxiety. And there's always a hook. There's always a trap. And somewhere along the line, in the last 50 years, somebody came up with the idea of this momentum selling or this yes momentum or create a yesable proposition. And then somebody went out there and sold a book, said getting to yes. And we're like, okay, that's what we want to do. We want to get to yes. And somebody said, hey, you know what? Get somebody to say yes to three little things. And if you look at how they instruct us, they actually call this stuff tie downs. And so you tie them down with each yes. You tie them down. And then your last question you got them cornered and they have to say yes. And then you got them. Now, maybe somewhere on some distant galaxy far, far away, maybe I'll, I'll concede that there may have been a day that that was effective. But it's been done, done to so many of us so many times that now the minute somebody starts trying to get you to say yes, your guard goes up instantly. And this is, this is almost like a game that we play. And finally, everybody in my company has finally got to the point where they see it. Like You can't try to get intentionally, ask a closed-in question. Do you want this? Would you like this? Does this work for you? Would you like Would you like to make more money? People's guard go up instantly because like, where is this going? If I say yes, this, and I, my girlfriend once said to me when I accidentally asked her a yes question, it, here's how bad it is. Because I got it on a shirt that I don't like that I'm getting ready to throw away. And it was an expensive shirt. And I wore it that day. And she's like, ooh, I like that shirt. So I'm like, hmm, all right, maybe I don't throw this away. <laughs> then at the end of the day, I go, so you like this shirt, right? And she says to me, if I say yes, what am I letting myself in for? <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, you haven't said earlier today you like this shirt. I'm just going back for Legitimate confirmation. I'm not trying for commitment. There's three kinds of yeses, commitment, confirmation, and counterfeit. But we get trapped so much by these confirmation yeses, these tie-down yeses that lead us down this little path to where the bear trap is, that the minute somebody starts in on us on any yes, we immediately back up. And if, if we're not explicitly articulating what my girlfriend said, which is if I say yes, what am I letting myself in for? Everybody thinks that. And it is so overdone planet-wide, that it's equivalent of trying to give a hug to a battered child. We've all been battered by this yes nonsense, this yes trap. Attorneys call it cornering. That the minute anybody tries us to get to say yes to anything, we, we can't help but react like battered children. We start to back away. We start to get anxious. We start to worry about it. 
I was, I was, I'm having a conversation with this about my son is my director of operations now, chief negotiator for my company. He's turned into a brilliant negotiator. About two years ago, we're walking out of this building, security building, where we're doing a training. And he says, you know, I'm not completely sure that everybody is, is reluctant to say yes under all circumstances. Now, at this moment, we're standing in front of the security guard who's checked us in, who works for Allied Security. He's at work for Allied Security. He's seen us before, and he's got on a uniform that says Allied Security. So I look at the security guard, and I go, do you work for Allied Security? And he looked up at me, and he kind of looked startled, and he looked around, and then he goes, maybe. <laughs> and I looked at my son, and I just shrugged my shoulders. I go, what do you want from me? <laughs> Guy standing there at work on duty in uniform because he's so used to a yes is a trap. And if I say yes, what am I letting myself in for? Happens all the time. We're all battered with this. So I didn't, you know, I didn't even realize it as a hostage negotiator until I was really, when I was working on my book about, about three years ago, we were working on the book, second writer I was working with. You know, he believes that yes, you know, getting to yes. And he said, you know, as a hostage negotiator, how did you guys get people to say yes? And I remember being thoroughly stumped because it hadn't really occurred to me at that point in time. I said, we never did. It's a useless, worthless word. It's so useless. We even bother with it. And we don't. And we don't in my company now either. We don't try to get people to say yes. Well, so you got me hooked, engaged and curious. So then in these scenarios, like, let's say you do get someone on the phone. The question is not, do you have a few minutes to chat? What is the question? Is now a bad time to talk? That is the right question. Is now a bad time to talk? Is now a bad time to talk? That's our our number one. And a close number two is, have I caught you in the middle of something? Okay. And then play it forward. Where does that take us? Well, all right. So I'm going to say, I'm going to call you on the phone. I'm going to say, hi, uh, it's Chris. Is now a bad time to talk? Because first problem is you don't know who I am when I call. Most salespeople, most people call, hey, have you got a few minutes to talk without identifying themselves? Either either they know your voice or you're trying to get them to say yes, you want to get them to trap, trapped into the conversation before they even know who, who they're talking to. Or a lot of people call my phone and say, can I talk to Chris, please? Or can I speak to Chris Voss? Now, no, none of my friends ever call my phone and say, can I speak to Chris Voss? That's true. They say, hey, hey, Chris, it's Eric. Hey, Chris, it's Pete. Hey, Chris, it's Mike. So by identifying yourself first name only immediately, you've even if even if you don't know me, you know, I'm Chris and your tension, your anxieties come down. Now, the next thing is. I want you to say no, because no makes people feel safe and protected. Every time you say no, you protected yourself. Having just protected yourself, the anxiety has gone away. Your mind is calmed. You're in more, you feel in control. And consequently, while I'm talking, you're not sitting there going, where's this going? What's this going on? What's the trap? What am I letting myself in for? Because you already said no and you feel protected. And so it actually causes you to pay more attention in the moment because you feel in control. You don't feel trapped. So that those, are, those are the first and most important things because I've, if you don't feel tra- trapped, then your willingness to trust has just gone up. And as I said before, we're looking for trust and competence. So I'm not trying to trap you. And you know my first name is Chris. I've just built a lot of trust instantly. That is not mine to lose, which I still might lose. 
but I've got it instead of causing your anxiety immediately, but trying to get you to say yes, which erodes your trust factor. Oh, I love it. Okay. So I say, Hey, Chris, it's Pete. It's now a bad time. Exactly. And now I'm going to answer one of two ways. I'm going to say, I'm going to go like this. I'm going to go like, no, Pete, no, man, no, go ahead. It's never a bad time to talk. What do you got? Now, those words have just told me I'm a, I, you have all of my attention at least for seven more seconds, but you've got it all in that moment. As opposed to when I say, have you got a few minutes to talk while you're going, where's this going? What does this mean? What have I let myself in for? I don't have any of your attention because all those questions are going through the back of your mind. That's right. So I've gone into, first of all, now I got a thousand percent of your attention. Now the the next smart move at this point in time, you know what you want to say and you know how long it's going to take. Let's say I need four minutes to lay out what I want from you. I'm going to say, Pete, I need seven minutes because I want to condition you to get used to however much time you grant me, I'm going to take less. So that whenever I ask you for time, because this have you got a few minutes to talk thing, a few minutes is anywhere from three to 93. (laughs) And part of what the distraction is, how long is this going to take? You're looking at your watch, you got appointments, you're expecting calls, you're trying to get back to your emails. You don't know how long it's going to be. Interestingly enough, this not knowing how long it's going to last is the principal psychological stressor. Like of our lives. <laughs> exactly. No of kidding. our lives. Of our lives. Way back when I tried out for the FBI's hostage rescue team, which is the FBI's equivalent of the Navy SEALs. Now, they wanted to put us to the maximum psychological stress. And one of the ways they did that, they'd say, we're going for a run. And we'd say, all right, how far we're going? We're not telling you. All right. Now, each and every time we went out with these guys, they never ran us for more than 45 minutes at a time. But if you're taking me for a run and you go, all right, we're going eight miles. I've run enough to know how fast I got to go to cover six minute miles, seven minute miles, eight minute miles. I'm going to run at my speed to cover the distance. You don't tell me how long we're going. Now I'm whacking out. Like, do I got to run six minute miles? Do I got to run seven? How far are we going? And that was so the unknown. How long is this going to last is the psychological stressor of the history of mankind. And that's what you're putting people through when you say you've got a few minutes to talk because they don't know how long it's going to last. Yeah, I'm right with you there. So let's keep this demonstration going here. So I go, hi, Chris, it's Pete. Is now a bad time? He's like, no, no, Pete, this is great. It's like, I'm going to need seven minutes. And then what happens? And I say, all right, here's the deal. Here's what you're faced with. Because first of all, I, I need you either to let me know I'm on the right track or to dial me in. And then I'll say, if I once I've laid that out, then I'm going to go for no again. I'm going to say, instead of, you know, would you like to do this? I'm going to say, is it a ridiculous idea that you do this? Are you against doing this? Is this a bad idea? Again, I'm trying to trigger no. In reality, I have a firm belief that, and we call this a calibrated no. A calibrated no is worth at least five yeses. Because once you said no to something, You're either going to take action or you're going to tell me what you need to take action. Case in point, um, my company, we just did a training in New York City about a week and a half ago. uh, Advanced Tactical Empathy. It was a master class on persuasion. 
uh, I had recently met Roger Robert Herzvek of Shark Tank. All right. And offered a ticket to anybody from his company. He is a warm, engaging, interesting guy. He sure seems like it on the show. He is. I mean, he sat down and gave me 90 minutes for lunch, having never met me only on the basis of a recommendation from a mutual acquaintance. I was blown away. I mean, there's so many cool things about this guy. So I thought, you know, I'm a, yeah, I dig this guy. I'm going to give him a, I'm going to give him a ticket, you know, let, let his people, you know, taste the wares a little bit. Maybe we get some follow on business. He's sweet enough. When I sent him the email, he says, you know what? He says, how many can I buy? Mm. And so I'm like, all right. So in addition to the, the, the complimentary ticket, cause even though he's offered to pay, you know, I don't want there to be any doubt in his mind that he still gets a complimentary ticket. I say, you know, we got seven seats left. How many, how many do you want? 24 hours go by before I get an answer. We're now down to four seats. The, the, this is shrinking fast and I'm having trouble getting a commitment out of him. And if I get a, you know, I'm having trouble them giving me a number. And if I don't get a number immediately, it's going to close and I can't let him in at all because we cap. We capped the number of people we were willing to have in a room because we wanted some really individualized instruction. We charge them a lot of money to be there, and we're going to give them value. So finally, saying, "Look, I think I, you know, I can spring, I can spring three people," and this procrastination has gone on all long enough. I, I'm still not paid, and I got he's got to pay me in the next twelve hours, or it's going to close. So I sent him an email back, and I say. Are you against making a commitment for three people now? And are you against paying for these before the start of business tomorrow morning? Because his company, my company in Los Angeles, it's about five o'clock in the afternoon. Clock's working against us. We're three hours behind New York, the other half of my company, which means New York starts the next day before we do, which means if he doesn't pay now overnight, He's not going to get his spots and I'm going to feel bad because he got shut out. So I get an instantaneous email back. It says, no, we're not against making the commitment now. And no, we don't have a problem paying with you before the start of the business day tomorrow. I get a follow on email from his assistant. They go online, they pay overnight after business hours because my nose triggered instantaneous focus and concentration and willingness to take the next steps. That's so good. That's so good. And I'm curious about this now as well in, in a written format, because that progressive yes stuff that you were talking about also seems to be a guideline in copywriting, which I've been learning about. And so I'm thinking, oh, maybe I've done it all wrong. You know, I've got an invitation to enroll in a course page. And the first question is something I want people to say yes to. Like, is your job disappointing you? So from a writing perspective, would you also kind of flip it in terms of, is your job perfect in every way? That's a great one. That's more thought provoking. That's more attention getting. Somebody can say no to that and they're not going to feel trapped. Interesting. Is it a different kind of a trap? It's like, well, no, but of course, no job is perfect. Come on now. I don't know. I wonder if there's a different kind of defensiveness that that triggers. No. There's, okay. All right. I All mean, right. And, but what you're doing is, see, we're wired to be negative and to be skeptical. Um, everybody knows we got the caveman brain, the reptilian brain, whatever you want to refer to it as. That was necessary for the survival of the species. 
Because the optimistic caveman would walk by a cave and go, you know what? I realized that last time we walked by here that Fred walked in and there was a lot of screaming and growling and he never came out. But I'm an optimist. I think this cave's going to be okay. I'm going to walk in there and see what's inside. Now, that guy died. Now, so the skeptics survived. That's how we survived. That wiring is still in our head. So any new idea that you haven't heard or if you haven't seen it in action, your caveman brain goes, I don't know. I can figure out how this might go bad. Because that was necessary for the survival of the species when we were getting eaten by saber-toothed tigers. Unfortunately, we still got that in it, in us, and we're not getting eaten by saber-toothed tigers. And that's why we miss a lot of opportunities. Because in our head, if it's new and different, we're initially skeptical. Okay, understood. So you'd recommend, if in sort of a sales writing perspective, your headline should try to trigger a no instead of a yes. Yeah. Trigger a no, or at least stay away from yes, because every other swamp land timeshare salesman on the planet <laughs> has already been at your target audience with the yes questions. Would you like to live in a beautiful place for free? Would you like to sit back and let your money work for you instead of you work for your money? You know, all these, all these, all these. It's been so overdone that people are sickened by it. And I don't know if it's a fair analogy. You might have a favorite food. What happens if you overeat that food and become sickened by it? The mere smell of it disgusts you from that point on. And so the, the, the merest whiff of this yes momentum and people are immediately turned off by it. So maybe a better question for the timeshare sales would be, do you pretty much want to Stay at home every summer. <laughs> Something along those lines, yeah. Well, no, I don't. We want to get out a little bit. Uh-huh, yeah. There you go. Trigger, no. I mean, it's it's crazy. It works on, and it works on everybody. Employee, employer. I have coached people to go to their boss when they've been given a ridiculously difficult task and say to the boss, do you want me to fail? <laughs> and... Never had a negative response from that. But we always, if I, you know, I tell people that and they go like, oh, boss going to burst into flames and say, how dare you? Of course I don't. What's the matter with you, you insubordinate, ungrateful employee? <laughs> You're fired. That's what, you know, that's what our caveman brain does to us. But it doesn't work that way. That's powerful. Thank you. I've got so much I want to cover. I'm watching the clock here. Hey, it's the principal stressor, eh? So, <laughs> so you've got so many just juicy teasers in your book and your table of contents. So I'm going to have to prioritize a bit. Can you share what are the two words that immediately transform a negotiation? All right. So normally we want to make our case and we want to get somebody to say yes. And the two words are not the two words that come out of your mouth, but the two words that come out of their mouth that transform the negotiation. And the most transformative two words, it's the equivalent of sprinkling fairy dust on somebody, is when they say to you, that's right. That's right. When you first hear that's right, you, you think to yourself, that's it? Like I expected it to be something more powerful than that. Like, I love it when people say, you're right. Well, actually, you're right is what we say to people to get them to shut up and leave us alone. Yeah. 
And but that's right. Like whatever side of the aisle you're on, whether you're Republican, whether you're Democrat in the last presidential election or any presidential election, if you will, when you saw the two candidates on TV, when they said something that spoke to you, that really mattered to you, that resonated with you in a deep level, you didn't point at the TV screen and go, you're right. You pointed at the TV screen and you went, that's right. Because it's it's a confirmation words out of your mouth that what you just heard resonated with you on a very deep level. And you may have made your mind up in that moment of which of those two candidates to vote for. Got it. So what are some of the best ways to elicit a that's right? Well, a little bit is let's go back to the, the beginning. Laying out the situation as they say it, see it, not as you see it. And then the real trigger points are when you begin to describe it, not as they see it, but also how they feel about it. Like a political consultant that took one of my classes said, you know what? You think that America's best days are ahead of us and not behind us. You're frustrated by what's currently going on today, but you got a sense that America would be so much better. So that included what I just said to you just now, some words about how people feel. You're frustrated by this, especially if you can articulate the negative emotions that someone feels in a situation. And the real geniuses are, the real, the courage, the, the deal, the fixers are the people that can walk into a deal and express it if it's about them. One, another, another one of my students, she's got a, she's got a business to business negotiation. She's with the big, government contractor, they got a small subcontractor in Washington, D.C. Small subcontractor is mad at the big contractor. The entire deal is getting ready to go down the tubes because the small guy's tired of getting pushed around and they think they're getting taken advantage of. She she walks in and she says, you know what, you think we're the bullies. You guys feel like that we're the big contractor that's pushing you around and we don't care about your profit. We don't care what happens to you. And we're arrogant and we're dominating the market. We don't care about the little guys. She laid about seven or eight other things out in that conversation. Into that first conversation, which was getting ready to destroy a multi-million dollar contract, the little guys on the other side went silent and they went, you know, we appreciate you saying that. We need to go back to our office and talk about this. After two more meetings, the big contractor pulled an additional $2 million in profit out of the deal, and the small contractor was even happier. So not only did they increase their profit, but they completely reestablished a relationship with a small contractor, was happy to let them increase their profit because they felt so good about the situation. That's wild. It's crazy stuff. It really is crazy counterintuitive stuff. Oh, so much good stuff. Well. Tell me, Chris, anything else you really want to make sure to highlight before we shift gears and hear about a few of your favorite things? No, I I mean, I think that's it. I mean, if you can develop a knack for describing to people what they see and how they feel about it, you have just become an extraordinarily powerful negotiator. Awesome. Thank you. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something that you find inspiring? You know, I'm I'm reading a bunch of stuff by Ryan Holiday uh, now. The, The obstacle is a way is a book that I just, I just put down effectively. It's, and I, you know, I'm paraphrasing, um, but it's, you know, whatever the obstacle is, you know, there's a secret code in there just for you. that's going to lead you to greater success. I love it. Thank you. 
And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? Another book I just finished, uh, The Culture Code. Starts out the, the book talking about um, a psychological experiment. Four teams are challenged to build a structure out of a marshmallow and a little, you know, like the dried spaghetti uh, little things. Yeah. And they, they got a marshmallow and they got these pieces of dried uh, spaghetti and they got tape. And they're challenged to build the tallest structure they could build. And they were teams of MBA students, teams of CEOs, teams of lawyers, and teams of da, 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 kindergartners. Guess who won? Kindergartners. The kindergartners won. And like, how can kindergartners outperform MBA students? How can kindergartners outperform lawyers? How can kindergartners outperform CEOs? And the rankings were first the kindergartners, second the CEOs, third the lawyers, and last were the MBA students. Because the kindergartners didn't mind making mistakes in front of each other. They weren't, they just wanted to have fun. They wanted to get into it. They wanted to experiment. They didn't get mad at each other. They didn't jockey for position or for prestige or authority or who's in charge, who can be the most in charge and do the least amount of work. None of that nonsense that the vast majority of us have gotten into that the only other better group, you know, CEOs after a while have, have learned like, look, if we don't perform as a team, we're in serious trouble here. So the CEOs have come to learn that teamwork is tantamount. But the other two groups are still screwing around with, I'm right, you're wrong, and I don't want to be embarrassed. And then the culture code does a great job of getting into how do you, in high-performing organizations, create this culture of fun because you're smarter when you're fun and, and how do you get stuff done and how do you get people to work together better as a culture. And some of the people in leadership positions or in cultural positions in companies are completely turning around companies without changing any of the personnel. There's a, there's a great story in there. The Pixar guys who, who create one monstrous, great cartoon movie, animated movie after another. Pixar takes over Disney. Disney's animation department is a train wreck. And the Pixar people come in and the two leaders from Pixar, all they do is change the approach. They don't change any of the personnel. And the next thing you know, without firing anybody or letting anybody go, Disney starts turning out hits again. What was the practice? You know, it was creating a collaborative practice where people felt included and not judged and supported. And once feeling simultaneously concluded and supported, then they could take the hard feedback because they don't make a great animation film without a lot of hard feedback. And, and they make it company-wide so much so that if you take any job with Pixar, and then one of the great examples was this young lady gets a job. She's a, the coffee barista in their cafe. New employee orientation, they sit you down in a room with everybody else and they say, you're a filmmaker now. Awesome. Even a person pouring coffee in a cafe because they know it's got to be a team and everybody's got to support everybody else. And that woman then ends up, goes on to successful roles within their filmmaking division. She starts out pouring coffee because everybody is part of the same team and they're all pulling on the same team together. Beautiful. And Chris, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? 
Subscribe to the Black Swan Group's negotiation newsletter. The Edge comes out once a week. It's a real simple process to subscribe. It's free, complimentary. It's a good price. Mm-hmm. Um, and the best way to subscribe, and it, these are short, sweet articles. They're not comp- long articles that are involved that where you have to go take a nap after you get done reading it because it's so dense. They come out once a week on Tuesday mornings. There, and, and, and the newsletter is also the gateway to everything we do. It's a gateway to the training. It's a gateway to the website. It's a gateway to everything. And the best way to subscribe to the newsletter is send a text message. And the message has got to be FBI empathy, all one word. Don't let your autocorrect put a space in between the FBI and empathy. Lowercase FBI empathy. Send that to 22828. And the number again is 22828. FBI empathy, all one word. You get a text back to sign up for the newsletter and we'll start making you a Jedi negotiator for the first article that you read. Cool. Thank you. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? You know, um, start paraphrasing what people say to you before you answer their questions. Just try it. Try it. Try it on your, your, your low stakes conversations. You're going to be delighted at the outcome. And as soon as you start trying that on your low stakes conversations, you'll, you'll have the feel for it to try it in your high stakes conversation. You know what? People are going to love interacting with you. They're going to love interacting with you. They're going to feel heard and understood. They're going to feel bonded to you. They're going to want to help you out. Awesome. Well, Chris, I've loved interacting with you and feel bonded to you. So thank you so much for taking this time, sharing the goods and keep on doing the great stuff over at Black Swan Group. Thanks, Pete. It's been a pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure. You let me prattle on like this. (laughs) Well, I hope you love that conversation and found it as riveting as I did. I read through Chris's book, Never Split the Difference, in record time. In fact, at one point, I was reading something so compelling. I was like, what? That has never happened in FBI negotiation history? Really? Never has a hostage been killed on time per the hostage taker's demand. Is that really true? I missed my train stop (laughs) because I I was so into it. And it turns out that was true until something happened. And it kind of changed the game a little bit. And there's some lessons learned. So. A lot of good stuff. One tidbit I'd love to share here in addition to this interview, because we didn't get as much of the data-driven stuff. We had more cool story stuff. But if you are Jones and for a number, he dropped a great one right around page 89, 90 of the book. So I'll read a smidgen of an excerpt. I haven't done this before. Maybe I should incorporate this. Hey, let me know what you think anytime. Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. He says that one of his grad school students is a political fundraiser and really drove home the lesson about going for the no instead of the typical yes pattern that he was using in the fundraising script while raising money for Republican congressional candidates. So the script goes something like this. Fundraiser, hello, can I speak with Mr. Smith? Yes, this is he. I'm calling from the XYZ committee and I wanted to ask you a few important questions about your views on our economy today. Do you believe that gas prices are currently too high? Yes, gas prices are much too high and hurting my family. Do you believe that the Democrats are part of the problem when it comes to high gas prices? Yes, Obama is a bad person. Do you think we need change in November? Yes, I do. Can you give me your credit card number so you can be a part of that change? And so that's sort of the typical yes script in terms of that's supposed to build up a reservoir of positivity and result in a whole bunch of donations. But they found, in fact, they weren't getting a whole lot of results. So then this same fundraiser read the book Jim Camp the book, a start with no in class and thought maybe we should go for the no. And so here's what a no oriented script sounds like if you were wondering. So once again, fundraiser calls, 
Hello, can I speak with Mr. Smith? This is he. I'm calling from the XYZ committee and I want to ask you a few important questions about your views on our economy today. Do you feel that if things stay the way they are, America's best days are ahead of them? So he's going for a no there. No, they will only get worse. Are you going to sit and watch President Obama take the White House in November without putting up a fight? No, I'm going to do anything I can to make sure that doesn't happen. If you want to do something today to make sure that doesn't happen, can you give to the XYZ committee, which is working hard to fight for you? And so then they were swapping out the yes attempts to acquire no's, and they discovered that they got a 23% better return on that. So pretty cool. If you were jonesing for some data, there is a tidbit, a 23% better rate of return when asking for those no's. So that and much more good stuff in the book, Never Split the Difference. So again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F311. And if you have not already, I hope you'll push subscribe in your podcast player of choice to hear from our next guest. It is Vince Molinaro, and he is talking about the leadership contract, what is expected between leaders and followers and how that's done well. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 